0: If you turn to Isaiah chapter 7, how many of you have ever heard a sermon preached from Isaiah 7? One. Most people go to chapter 6 and see the radiance of God's glory in chapter 6 and God's call to go and and we stop. But chapter 7 is so, such a beautiful chapter. Um, So, I'm going to read. We're going to be in verses 1 through 16 for our text um, tonight. Actually, we're going to go through 19. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we have a little extra time tonight. I'm going to read through it and um, go from there. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> and This is the word of the Lord to His people. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherejah, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalya. Because Syria... With Ephraim and the son of Emorya has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up for the son of Tubiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people." And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word here that there is one who is coming and has already come who is Emmanuel who is God with us the person of Jesus who came and lived among your people. Father we praise you for the opportunity we know that the Old Testament was written for us That we may know you and we may see the promises and see how those promises have unfolded throughout history and in the person of Jesus himself. And so tonight, I pray that we would take heart. That we would trust in you. That we would lean upon you in the midst of the trials and the tribulations and the heartaches and the anxiety and the stress of every day of our lives. That we would put our faith in you. Because you love us. And you are a loving Father who cares for your children. Speak to us tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. In August of uh, 2009, my brother uh, was serving his second tour in Iraq. His first tour, he had been shot um, through the shoulder and, uh, on, and was given a reason not to go back with a medical issue and But he said, as long as my my guys are going, I'm going with them. And so he was serving in Iraq, and and, um, he had a very young family uh, here in the States, his whole life ahead of him. And I'll never forget getting the phone call in the middle of uh, the afternoon one day, and on the other line was my sister-in-law, who said that my brother and two of his soldiers— we're being court-martialed now. If you know anything about the military, this is a serious offense, and um, he he had a litany of charges. It was in the news, um, in, in in military newspapers. It was on um, the TV channels. I'll never forget it. We began to pray and pray and pray and pray. Uh, we called upon everybody that we knew to just begin praying for this situation. We came before God at, at that time as a family broken, and we were desperate. There was nothing that we could do. We we couldn't. We didn't have the money to hire the best defense. Uh, we we had nobody to call. We wrote letters to to senators and to as many people as we could think of. Just pleading for them to get involved in this situation. And, but ultimately, it came to us getting on our face before God and just praying. My brother faced 25 years in prison because of the charges being levied against him. And he would have spent 25 years there if God had not intervened in the situation. Our faith was in God in the midst of that trial in our lives. And I wish I could sit here in front of you and say that we respond to every situation and every heartache and every trial in that way. But unfortunately, I would assume I'm much like you and that we don't. So where do you turn when life happens? When troubles and heartaches and trials come into your life, when the daily stress of children and work and home where do you put your trust in the most difficult of times in your life? There's no doubt that every one of us in here are going to experience a difficulty that is going to shake us, that's going to rock us, it's going to, it's going to hurt at some point in our lives. And, and if you've not already gone through something like that, you're going to receive a, a word that, that you're no longer needed at your place of employment or that the doctors are going to come back with a diagnosis that, you, you have a terminal illness or, or you're going to have to live with a sickness or you're going to be like Randy in the middle of a, a great trip to the Holy Land and all of a sudden a heart attack happens. There's going to be that call in the middle of the night that a loved one has passed away. Some of us are going to hear a spouse look at us and say, you know what, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. And some of us are going to deal with the everyday stresses of life. What then? Who will be your rock of solitude, your fortress in whom you will stand? I want to encourage you tonight. Don't wait for that trial to hit to know where your trust is going to lie. Because if you do, if you do wait, it's too late. Your decision will already be made for you. Because you're going to go back to what you're most comfortable with. And for some people, that's going to be drugs. And some, that's going to be alcohol. And some, that's going to be working all the time. For others, it's going to be um, money to please themselves. Some people are going to put their trust in themselves that I can handle this. I can get through it. I'm in this situation. It's up to me to make it happen. But we're going to trust in something. We're going to trust in something or someone in the most difficult times in our lives. And yet everything that we trust in outside of God is going to leave us empty. No hope and no future in the midst of our struggles. So tonight I want to encourage you uh, from Isaiah chapter 7 to put your trust in God alone as your fortress and your comfort in the midst of life's troubles. He is the one that we can put our trust in when all of life is crumbling around us and it doesn't make sense and we don't know why these things are happening to us and we begin to cry out to God, why, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? It's in the midst of those times that Yahweh is refining us and he is calling us unto himself and he wants us to put our trust in him. And he has promised in his word that he will never leave us nor will he ever forsake his people. Because he loves us. One of the greatest things that as a believer that has just been monumental in my own life is to see God as a loving father who cares for his son. He loves me. And so when I'm going through the hard times of life, I can know that I can trust him. God has never told us that troubles and heartaches and trials won't come. He's never promised that. This health, wealth, prosperity gospel that is spreading throughout the world today is false. It is false. God has never promised us a perfect life. He reigns on the just and in the unjust alike. But what he has given us is a promise that he will be with us in the midst of whatever we go through. So let's look at that promise tonight from Isaiah chapter 7. The story of Ahaz, king of Judah. I love this story. The first thing that we notice in the text is that troubles bring fear. Let me give you a little background to, to this story that is unfolding here in Isaiah, Isaiah 7. If you were to look at 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1-9, through 9, and in 2 Chronicles 28, it gives us the backdrop to what we see right here in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read this to you. It says... Uh, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do right in the sight of Yahweh as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and burned his sons in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had driven out before the sons of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Ahaz is a wicked man before the Lord. And God is now raising up the armies around him. And so what we have in our text today as we come to the very beginning of it is that you have Rezin, who is king of Aram, or, or another word for, another name for Syria. And Pekah is the king of Israel. And they want to go to war against Assyria. It would be easier if I had a map to show all this to you on. I'm used to teaching it from that perspective. But you have Israel and Syria and Assyria over here. And they want to join forces, but they want Ahaz to join them because they know that their armies are not great enough to defeat Assyria by themselves. So they go to Ahaz and they say, hey, come and join us in battle. And Ahaz rejects their proposal. So Rezin and Pekah decide to go to war against Judah. And, and so their armies begin conquering the land of Judah, taking prisoners with them as they go. And they come to Jerusalem, as we see here in our text, they come to Jerusalem, but they're not Able to take it over, they build a siege work against it, but they're not able to overtake the city of Jerusalem. In verse two, we observe that Rezin had moved his um, his forces in with Ephraim or into Israel, um, and so the report comes to Ahaz. It comes into the people of Judah, and what is the response? of Ahaz and his people. Fear. The text says that they were shaken as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. They are scared to death. They're they're shaken in their boots about this military that's coming up that has put a siege work around Jerusalem and is about to overtake them. They are trembling. Now, Fear is a natural tendency, right? It's a natural tendency when something comes into our lives that's unexpected or that threatens us. We immediately become fearful, and every one of us, in times of despair, we begin to fear and we'll begin to worry about what's going to happen uh, to us in the future. What's the outcome of this situation going to be like? But remember this, believer, we're not natural men. Right, The natural way is to be slowly fading away and the spiritual man is to be coming alive in us more and more and more. And so we're to put off that fear. It happens. None of us in here are immune to it, but we have to be putting that to death. And so what we see is that when troubles come into our lives, heartaches come into our lives, we begin to fear. And yet God wants us to push worry and he wants us to push fear out and replace it with trust. The reason for Ahaz's fear. is he had no one to trust in. He had no one to trust in that was greater than the army that he faced. When we fear and we worry and we have anxiety over what's coming into our lives. The reason that happens It's because we're not putting in our trust in someone or something that is greater than that which we are experiencing. We don't believe that something is, we believe that that moment in time, that is the greatest thing that could ever happen. And it's going to overtake me. Instead of putting our trust in Yahweh and trusting him to deliver us from from the heartache or the trial that we're going through. Ahaz had no relationship with God. He doesn't turn to God's prophets for answers. He never turns to God in prayer to ask him what needs to be done. Instead, Ahaz turns to his own understanding. What can can I do to alleviate the problem that I'm in right now? What can I do to make this situation better? Listen, where there is no daily walk with God, fear will overtake us in the midst of our trials where we're not walking daily with God, then when we enter into heartaches and trials and stress and anxiety, it's going to overtake us. Because we are not in communion with the one who is greater than anything we can experience. God doesn't want us to be fearful. What God wants is for us to trust in Him for deliverance. Look at verses 3 through 9. The Lord tells Isaiah, his prophet, his spokesperson, to go out to Ahaz to meet up with him. Um, The Lord is gracious here. Um, God made a covenant with David that there would never, ever be a time when he would not have a king that was sitting on the throne of Judah. That he would have a king that would always be on the throne. So God has cut this covenant with David That he would always have that lineage there. And so even though Ahaz hates God, even though Ahaz has no relationship with God, God took the initiative. He said, Ahaz, I'm going to come to you. And so that's what happens. He sends Isaiah to go out. Um, Notice the text that says Ahaz, he has to tell Ahaz to be careful, to be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of what's coming against you, because of these armies that are coming against you. When I was reading through this, when, when I saw that word, those words, "Be careful," at the very beginning of it, it took me back to Genesis, um, chapter four, chapter five, uh, Cain and Abel. When God comes to Cain and says, "Cain, I know what you're planning to do," he says, "Beware." Sin is sitting at your doorstep waiting to sift you, right? I mean, God came to him. He initiated that relationship with Cain, said, Hey, I'm coming to you. I'm letting you know you're thinking and you're about to do something that is not pleasing to me. It is sin. And as as soon as I saw it, be careful. Watch out what you're about to do, it has great ramifications. All right? God came to Cain. Look out about what you're fixing to do because it has great ramifications for the rest of your life. And so he's warning him, God in his mercy, even though Ahaz is rejected and rejected and rejected, God in his mercy comes to him and says, be careful. Think about what you're about to do. God has a a plan. Um, He gives Ahaz an opportunity to master the temptation, to use his political... Um, means to deliver the people of Judah. But God has a plan for the deliverance of His people. And, but Ahaz and Judah have to trust Him for that deliverance. They have to put their faith in God alone for that deliverance instead of trusting in themselves. Notice verse 7. The Lord says, It will not stand. This uprising... This, this declaration, this desire to replace you as king and set up this other guy as king, it's not going to happen. God says, I'm going to put an end to it. This, this uprising is not going to happen. And, and he says, why? In verse 8, because the head of Syria, the head of Ephraim, they're, they're going to be destroyed within 65 years. Now, Not only is it going to come to pass, not only is they're not going to come to pass, but God is actually going to eradicate them. He's going to destroy these peoples that are doing this. And so, and that's exactly what happens in 732 BC. Both Rezin and Pekah are killed and Syria falls to the Assyrian army. And then in 722 BC, Samaria is destroyed by Assyria. Isaiah said in verse 8 that it would take 65 years when in, within 65 years and it happened within a matter of about 12 years that this took place. God tried to encourage Ahaz and assure him that because of his covenant with David because he had already made a promise he would already cut this covenant that he would never let this plot come to pass and yet notice what the Lord says in verse 9 at the very end he says if you are not firm in your faith You will not be firm at all. If you will not believe, you will not last. He tried to get Ahaz to trust his promises. And the Lord is saying to Ahaz, if you don't trust in me and you don't depend on me as your refuge, then you're not going to last. You're going to be destroyed as well. You will be consumed just like these other nations. God was keeping a promise in the midst of this ensuing army. He had already made a promise that the Davidic line would stay on the throne. And so he told Ahaz, be careful, just trust in me. Don't lean upon your own understanding, trust in me. God has made a promise to us, believers. He's made a promise that he will always be with us. That we can trust in him. If you're a Christian here this evening, there is never a time that God is not with you. You cannot leave God. I heard this growing up. If you go into a bar, you're leaving God on the outside. No, God goes everywhere you go as a believer. He is with you always. And he is saying, trust in me, take refuge in me, In the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our stresses in our lives, they're not going to overtake you. I promise you, they're not going to overwhelm you to the degree that you cannot stand it. But if you fail to trust in me, if you fail to put your faith in God, then the weight of your circumstances will crush you. It will weigh on your mind, it will weigh on your heart, and fear and worry will dominate our lives if we don't trust in God alone. Not only has He given us a promise of deliverance from our trials in this life, but God has promised us that one day there'll be no more sickness, and there'll be no more trials, and there'll be no more tears. That, that the one that we talked about last week, That the bone-crushing deceit of the woman is going to come and one day He's going to deliver us ultimately from anything that can come against us. Amen? He has made a promise that Jesus is coming back. And He's going to deliver us from any kind of oppression, any kind of bondage, any kind of sickness or disease or trial or stress or whatever it is that we may be going through. He's going to deliver us from that once and for all, finally, done. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. In these momentary light afflictions that we go through. Because God never fails to deliver on his promises. God. And just like God here promised to shatter Ephraim and Syria, so God has promised one day that he's going to shatter any hope that Satan has of taking us, any hope of torturing us, any hope of overtaking us with guilt and, and sickness and all these other things. So, are you suffering under the weight of your circumstances? because you're trusting in yourself or trusting in something else to get you through it? Have you been carrying that weight for a while? Because it gets heavy. Been there. Know what it's like. You know what Jesus said in the New Testament? Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He will give us nothing but rest from our trials. He's saying, trust in me, cast your cares upon me, and there will be rest rest for you. Don't be buried under the weight of your troubles and your trials. Stand firm in faith on the promises of God that he will be with you. Notice the rest of our text, 10 on... The beauty of this portion of text here. The Lord says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. And um, don't. I want to encourage you, don't doubt the Lord. Don't doubt his promises. Don't doubt his faithfulness to his promises. The Lord knows Ahaz's disbelief. He's warned him. And so he tells him in verse 11, ask for a sign. Ask me, he's, he's trying to move Ahaz here to faith, to, to put his trust in him, to, to, to not think about what he's about to do. But in disbelief, Ahaz rejects the offer of a sign. Now, I want, us to, I want to kind of set the stage of what, what is a sign? Um, a sign is not an end in and of itself. According to the dictionary, a sign is something that conveys information about something else. So our primary focus should be on what the sign is conveying, not the sign. A stop sign is not there for us to gaze upon it and see how beautifully red it is and how the nice black letters say S-T-O-P on it. It's not meant for us to gaze at the sign. It's telling us there's something more important. That means there's traffic around. Stop where you're at. Don't go any further. It's not meant for us to gaze upon it, but to understand what it's pointing to. There's danger if you don't stop. There's oncoming traffic. There's traffic from the sides. We have to stop. And so it's important for us to understand signs as we read through the Bible and what they're there for. The signs point us to something that is greater than the sign itself. God has offered Ahaz a sign, a sign that will show Ahaz and Judah that the Lord is faithful to his promises and that he will be with them in the midst of their troubles. And he's going to preserve for himself a people. But notice here, not only can Ahaz ask for a sign, but it can be any sign that he wants. Now, this isn't given to many people. God says, as high as the heavens, as low as Sheol, ask whatever you want, and I'm going to give you a sign just so that you will trust me. But whatever sign Ahaz asked for, the point was the same. Whether it's a great miracle out of the heavens, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, whether it's something that comes up from the bottoms, like the flood, Whatever it may be, the point is the same. Is there anything too great for the Lord? Ask a sign. God will show his great power that he is above all things by providing a sign out of whatever Ahaz asks. Because the sign's not what's important. It's what the sign points to that's important. I think many of us would read this story and go, if I'm Ahaz, I don't want a sign. I want a hero. I want a great army that is going to defeat that person that's outside of that wall, sieging our city. Right? You know how I know that's what we would say? Because when we come into the midst of a trouble in our own lives, what do we want? We want out. We want out of the problem. We want out of the trouble. We don't want to be in the midst of that trial. We don't want to be in that frying pan when the fire's underneath of us. We want God to take us out of it. Ahaz doesn't want a sign. Ahaz wants God to just wipe it away, make everything go away for him. And the same thing you and I do. God, make it go away. I don't want to be here. I didn't ask for this. I don't deserve this, God. Why am I going through this? Yeah, that's, that's where we're at. I mean, right? I mean, I hope I'm not the only person here that does that. I've had two neck surgeries, and both times I'm like, God, really? Why, why am I going through another, a, a neck surgery in the first place, and then why am I going through a second one? And yeah, there were times of, of doubt, of, of just take me out of it. Fix the problem, and it'll all be good. But you know what? The Lord is so gracious that he's patient, with us who doubt him, who doubt that he is faithful to his children? When God says that he's going to do something and we doubt how, oh how little faith we have? Oh how we, we shame his glory in the midst of that doubt and that worry? And yet he offers a sign to show that he's faithful. And so Ahaz response, oh no. I will. He goes back to Deuteronomy, right? He goes back to Deuteronomy. I will not test the Lord. I'm, I'm above that. If, you know, here's the problem. If Ahaz asks for the sign, he's putting his trust in God, which he has yet to do. If he doesn't ask for the sign, he's telling the people that I don't trust God and I don't need God's help. So instead of choosing one or the other, Ahaz walks the middle and says, oh, no, I'm going to quote Deuteronomy here. I'm going I'm to plead the fifth on this one. I will not test the Lord God. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And, and um, yet his actions prove that it's nothing more than a cover-up. You see, Ahaz was an astute politician. Assyria was a superpower uh, of the day, much like we were at one time, and so Ahaz doesn 't trust the word of the Lord. he doesn 't want a sign because he 's already made up in his mind the way he 's going to get out of the situation that he 's in. he didn 't want god 's help. he 's going to go to Pool, who is the king of Assyria, and he 's going to ask him to come in and eradicate these armies that have come up against him. he didn 't trust God. He trusted man. He trusted the armies of Assyria. And Ahaz, who was supposed to be a vassal, supposed to be a servant in the hands of God, goes into the temple treasury, takes all of the gold, all of the utensils, and he takes it and he gives it to to Pool, king of Assyria, and he lays himself down, and he lays all these gifts down before him so that he can take refuge in Assyria, And instead of being the servant of God, he becomes the servant of Assyria. You see, that's what happens in our lives when we don't put our trust in God. We put ourselves in bondage to what we think can help deliver us. Many men spend many countless hours working, women too, in their jobs because that's what I have to do to make sure that we have enough money to make it through. And they forsake their families instead of trusting in God. There are so many times we take matters in our own hands instead of trusting in God, and we become a servant, a slave to that sin of doubt and worry and anxiety when we don't put our trust in God. Essentially, Ahaz became a glory thief. Instead of God getting the glory for delivering the people, Ahaz gave the glory to Assyria. And he robbed God of the glory that he was due in the midst of that trial. Who are we giving glory to? What are we giving glory to in the midst of our trials and our troubles in this life? We want to make sure God gets the glory because that's why he has brought us to it. So that he will look infinitely beautiful in the midst of that trial that we go through. Ahaz trusted in his own abilities. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. And I'm not going to sing that little song my kids showing me. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord. Our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. When we trust in chariots and we trust in horses and we put our trust in anything but Yahweh, God, the one who has promised to always be with us, we are falling down instead of being lifted up, and He is not receiving the glory. Some of you here tonight may doubt whether God is with you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through over the past year, six months, two months, years of your life. But you may be going through a difficult time and it never seems to end. It's like one after the other. If you talk to my wife some days, dealing with the kids is like that. It's like one trial right after the other every day of her life. But who are you trusting in? Where's your joy being found? Where is your heart being overwhelmed in the midst of the heartache and the trial and the trouble that you're going through in life, the stress of life? You can trust in money. You can trust in your job and you can trust in the stock market and trust in your coming retirement or alcohol or you can get away from society and and enjoy that or whatever it is, but all of those things are going to fail. Every one of them are going to fail us. They're never going to bring us peace that passes all understanding like God can give us. No matter how much money you make, you're going to have to make more. No matter how much alcohol you drink, you're going to have to drink more just to sustain life. No matter how many hours you work to get over the issues that are at home, you're going to have to work more. It's just the reality to it. They're empty answers to only a God sized answer. The Bible says in Proverbs 3 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not, on to, lean not on your own understanding, but all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He will direct our paths. And you know what? Sometimes we can't see. And we don't understand. But that's where faith comes in. And that's where trust in a God who is greater than anything that I can go through comes into play. Trust in the Lord. Don't reason within yourself that I can do this. I can handle this on my own. I can make this right. Because it's going to leave you continuously under the weight of of guilt and tired and wore out and worry and anxiety. In everything you do, trust in the wonderful promises of God because he never fails. God in his mercy now gives a sign. Now we're going to get to the actual sign. That he's going to be with his people. Even though Ahaz rejects God's offer, God's going to give it to him anyway. It's like, I don't care. I'm, 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 going, to, I'm going to give it to you anyway. And it's important to note that the sign is not for Ahaz any longer, singularly, but for the whole house of David. See, God is going to bring, and the rest of the text will tell you, God is going to bring out from among those people a people for himself, a remnant that is going to be his. And so the sign is for God's people who are putting their faith in him alone, that he is faithful to his promise. And let's look at it. There are three interpretations to verse Uh, 14. We're going to kind of just hurry up and get through this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, There's there's three different ways in which we can view this, this text here in verse 14. First, it only speaks of someone in the immediate time period with no future fulfillment to it. Secondly, it's only speaking of a future fulfillment ultimately in Jesus and that it has no immediate fulfillment. Or third, it has a dual fulfillment. And I would like to argue that it has a dual fulfillment to the text. Okay? And so it cannot mean today what it did not mean back then. It was written to a group of people at a particular time for their encouragement. And so it had to mean something to those people of that day. And so God says to him... um, that there is going to be a virgin who's going to conceive and bear a son. And, and the partial fulfillment would have meant something to the people. And then ultimately, we know, uh, based upon other texts, that it's fulfilled in the future. So who is this virgin and this child that is mentioned here? One uh, view is that in the immediate context that it's Hezekiah, uh, the good king who follows Ahaz, um, the problem with that is that Hezekiah would have probably already been born uh, prior to this prophecy. Another view would be that the child is uh, Isaiah's second son um, and that um, it, there's some suggestion based upon the wording of 714 and 8, 1 through 4 that, that it could be Isaiah's son that is mentioned here. Um, and then another view is that it's a young Princess um, who is a virgin at the time of this oracle who is unknown to us but known to the courts and that she will conceive, she will be married, she will conceive and she will have a child and the name of that child will then be called Emmanuel. Um, we don't know. In the immediate context, we don't know who the woman is in Isaiah, okay, and, and who this is that is to come uh, to be this woman. But the sign is in the name of the child, okay, so we, remember we got to look for what's relevant here. The name, the boy's name was a sign that God would be with them through the event that they were going through, and his birth would assure the end of Syria and Israel. All right, so the child's name is going to be called Emmanuel. And so on a broader scale, the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. Matthew uh, gives us the full meaning of the sign in Matthew 1, 21 through 23, where he quotes from Isaiah 14 as being typologically fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And so there's one who is going to be born at this time in history whose birth will be a sign that God is going to deliver his people, that he's going to be with them in the midst of this. But ultimately, Matthew gives us an understanding of what Isaiah was ultimately talking about and that the birth of Jesus would mean that God would be with his people. Tracking? All right. The future sense of the sign is even more realized as we look at Isaiah 9, 6, where it tells us that the Son... Uh, the name of the son to be born will be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So he was going to be obviously in the lineage of David to assume those names and take on deity upon himself. OK, so uh, the, the future looking forward. And so these words of Isaiah find their fullest meaning in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Um which is good for us, okay? This is, this is good for us because Jesus comes um, as God had planned from the womb of a virgin. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us in the truest sense. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then one fourteen tells us that and the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. So now Jesus is Emmanuel from Matthew, and John tells us that that word, that Jesus then dwelt among his people, and that he is God. Living among his people. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so God's glory radiant in Christ then comes and lives, takes on a a dual nature. He has a A heavenly nature and then he has his physical nature that he is born into the doctrine of the incarnation uh, that God put on flesh and dwelt among us and that he would be the one that Genesis 3 prophesied would come and crush the head of the serpent who tries to harm us is that not good stuff? I mean, that should make your heart just like bump a few extra beats there. Not, not too many, but a few extra beats just to overwhelm us with God's promise, his plan for the deliverance of his people, that we can look all the way back in the, New, in the Old Testament and just follow this, God's plan for his people. But if we don't believe, we're not going to live. Um, if we don't believe in the promises of God and stand upon them then the trials we face will crush us we have to understand that God is with us Ahaz didn't trust the Lord he became a slave of Assyria and then to Babylon and the same is true for those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ you are a slave to sin You're a slave to the things of this world. And there is no hope for you in the midst of your trials. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we're not to hope as the unbeliever. There's a different hope about us in Christ. There is hope. But outside of Christ, outside of putting our faith in Him, there's no hope unless you turn to Jesus and repent. But for those who believe... And we stand firm in all the, We can stand firm in all the difficulties of life and count them as joy knowing that it produces hope in us. We can know that God is faithful to his promise to be with his people. Because he promised in the garden that he would. He promised in Isaiah. I can walk you through so many texts through the Old Testament where God faithful, faithful, faithful to his promises. And then Christ comes. And here in Isaiah, God is still shouting, my promises are good. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Trust me. So no matter what you're going through in life this evening, you can trust in the promises of God that he will be with you. And he's never going to leave you. Don't let your heartaches and your trials crush you under their weight. Take the light yoke of Jesus upon us. The final verses of our text tonight tell us what happened to the land of Judah as a result of Ahaz's sin and his distrust in God. The idea that is conveyed in these verses is that the land is devastated. Nothing is going to grow. It's barren. And so while Judah would have been spared complete, Judah would be spared complete annihilation and will survive this attempt, the land is going to be destroyed because of his sin, because of his lack of trust in God. But God preserves for himself a remnant of Judah that are faithfully serving him. These final verses, I believe, tell us, as by way of application, that trusting in our own abilities leaves scars, leaves marks, our life some of us may have marks on our life already where we trusted in our own abilities outside of God but God will preserve those who trust in him you see as a believer you're going to experience difficult times troubles are going to come it's going to happen mark it it's going to happen no one is exempt no matter how spiritual you are i don't care if you fast 7 days a week it, you're going to hit trials. And when we trust in our own ways on how to handle those heartaches and stresses and trials in our lives, then they're gonna, those decisions will leave marks on us. But we have the promise of God that if we will trust in Him, then we won't be crushed. And we won't be scarred up from them. Started out tonight telling about my, my brother. In, in 2010, one year after his trial began or the trials began, the two soldiers who were with my brother were tried and, and convicted. The first one was convicted to one, uh, sentenced to one year in prison. The second was sentenced to six months in prison. They were going after my brother because he was the um, Sergeant, he was over the whole group, the whole unit. We trusted God. He did not, by far, have the best representation in court. But at the end of the trial, my brother was found not guilty on every single charge, with the exception of one small misdemeanor, and spent no time in prison. I'm telling you, as I stand here before you, there was nothing we did. We trusted God. We were broke. We had nowhere to turn but God. Is that the way it's always going to end? (laughs) No. No, it's not. Ask Job. Ask Job. But God wanted to teach our family something. He needed to teach our family something about trusting in him. And so he brought us through that circumstance in our life. He brought my brother through that circumstance in life. And he has been more open to hearing the gospel message since all of that than he ever was before it. Sometimes God brings troubles and heartaches and trials into our lives to prove our faith in him alone. He wants his people to trust him as, as I look at my children who trust me every single day to provide for them. They can't do it on their own. They want dad. They want dad to provide, to give them the food and the nourishment and the love that they need. They can't do it. And we are the same way before our heavenly father. He wants us. I want my kids to depend on me. I don't long for the day for them to be so independent that they don't need dad. And our Father in Heaven wants that from His children. That we would put our faith and our trust in Him as a little child trust in their father and their mother. That we would put Him on display. That, that people would see Jesus in the midst of our trials and our heartaches and that He would shine brightly. And that everybody would see Him as this perfect treasure where we would go and sell everything that we have so that we could have Jesus. That's what we need to be doing in the midst of our heartaches. Put Jesus on display. And we do that by trusting in the Father alone. You see, sometimes the Father refines us. He purifies us through our faith. And I'm closing sometime soon. Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." See, God takes us through heartaches and He takes us through trials and He takes us through those things so that we will put our trust and our faith in Him alone, that He would purify us and refine us. How are we doing? Church, how are we doing in our trials? Are you fearful? Are you worried? about what's going to happen, what the outcome's going to be? Are you fully trusting in God to come through for you? Do the troubles in life have you down? Does the enemy have you scared? If we're worried, Andy uh, Nesley says this. He says, humble people... Cast all their anxieties upon the Lord. Proud people worry. I thought that was very very profound. Proud people worry because we're robbing God of His glory and we're making ourselves the glory. We're making ourselves more than God when we trust in us and not in Him. Don't be a glory thief. Who are you turning to? I want to encourage you that whatever you're going through as a child of God He has promised to be with you. He wants to walk through these troubling times with you. And Matthew chapter 7 tells us that God cares for us. Do you know God loves you? No, really. Do you know that God loves each and every one of His children? You individually. And desires for you to lean upon Him as your Father. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this beautiful chapter. Thank You that You have promised and You are always faithful to Your promises, that You are going to be with us in the midst of our heartaches and trials. God, I pray tonight that Your glory has shined forth, that You have spoken and that You have grabbed hearts here tonight, that we would put our trust and our faith in You alone, that we would put You on display before the world around us. And Father, I pray that there's someone here tonight that is bending underneath of the weight of their trials and their circumstances, God, that they would be instilled with hope and a peace that only comes from You. And they would put their trust in You alone. Father, be with us this week. Keep us from worry. Help us not to be proud people, but to humble ourselves before You, casting our anxieties upon You. For You are faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.